Um, almost a decade ago, Intel came out with a really, really fun commercial. I think it's one of the better commercials ever made. Um, take a look and listen. Intel's ad from about 10 years ago. that great? The, the point is that if you only knew who I.J. Bahat was, you would be impressed by him, right? And, and further, further, this, this is really good writing. They're saying that those who are impressed by Mr. Bahat are themselves special because they're the wise, brilliant, blessed, anointed ones who work for Intel. Where in the world did they ever get such a clever idea? Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3 and you'll find out. Revelation chapter 3. It's the last book of your New Testament. Last one. There's no others. We don't add to it. Somebody had a dream. That's nice. <laughs> you saw something in your pepperoni pizza last week. That's cool, but we don't add to the Bible. It's, okay, so Revelation is the end, chapter 3, and let's pick it up at verse 14. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Stop there. As we summarize in your notes there, inside your worship guide you got when you came in, uh, Jesus is the real rock star. He's the real rock star. He is the so be it. That's what amen means. The word means so be it. Amen is based on a really old uh, Hebrew word. It, it, means, it means to accept things. It's a, it's a, it's a term of rest, of submission. You, you accept things as good and true because what is, is right. Think about it like this. When a small child falls asleep in a car, he is out, right? I mean, there is, there is maybe no sleep like the sleep of a kid in a car, right? Especially after tonight at Hawaiian Falls playing all evening with the church <laughs> on the way home, totally out. But there's a moment when, when mom or dad picks the kid up from, from the seat and is going to take the kid inside. There's a moment of panic in there. There's a ha ha. There's a, there's a wake up moment, a terrifying look. The arms usually do like this. And then the kid realizes it's mommy or daddy. And <sighs> there's that heavy sigh. <clears throat> and the kid, like, and that's real deep rest then. Daddy's got me. Mommy's got me. And then you take the kid. You can toss them anywhere. They're out, man. You just lay them down. They're, they're gone, right? That, my friends, is what it means that Jesus is the amen. He's the one against whom we can lead, against whom we can lean. We let him lead. We sigh on him. The panic is left behind as we learn to be at rest wherever he places us. 2 Corinthians explains why this is. Look, chapter 1, for every promise, every one of God's promises is yes in him. In the context, him is Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Because all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus, he is the amen. He's the so be it that, that sighs out of our souls as we settle into him. All God's people said Amen. Appropriate. Jesus is a great amen. He's also the true and faithful witness. How amazing is that? Jesus is true and faithful in everything he says. He alone can be trusted. 
Uh, Dan Ariely is a behavioral economist, author of a fascinating book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Uh, the subtitle tells you everything, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. Um, the book basically says that, that Ariely shows that we are hardwired to lie and to cheat. It's a well-done book. Most of the studies, I think, are pretty impressive. Now, Ariely might not put it in these words, being a committed atheist, but he proves that we are all tainted by sin. That's what the book proves. Every one of us is a liar and a cheater. As Billy Joel said, honesty is such a lonely word, everyone is so untrue except Jesus. Jesus isn't everyone. He's not your average rock star. He is not tainted by sin. He is the true and faithful witness. And that is awesome news, not just for now, but forever. Here's why. As Ariely found out, our Puritan ancestors were correct. Our Puritan ancestors noted that in Adam's fall, we thinned all. Um, that's, those are the first, that's the first sentence that generations of Americans learned to read. The, the New England Primer was the major way kids learned to read. So when I was little, it was a little book my mom gave me at two years old that said, A is for apple, shiny and red. Well, and, and that's nice, but that's not how our forefathers learned to read. They learned, A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. The, the point was that each of us is under the headship of Adam. We're made in the image of God, but that image has been defaced by a nature of sin. However, we have this promise. We will be transformed to be like Jesus. Another of John's books tells us this, 1 John 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He, Jesus, appears, we'll be like Him because we will see Him as He is. The context declares that, that we who trust Jesus are God's children now. Wonderful, but even better. When Jesus appears, we will see Him the way that John did in the vision he had in Revelation chapter 1. And in that moment, we will be changed to be like Him. We will no longer lie and cheat in Adam as all of us do. We will be faithful and true witnesses because we'll be in Jesus forever. Amen? Our rock star is not like other rock stars. Jesus is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the creator. It is impossible to overemphasize the importance of this. Jesus, God the Son, is equally creator with the Father and the Spirit. He is thus fully God. He knows us. He knows everything. In fact, John, John uses a, a very specific construction. Jesus and John use this term, originator of God's creation. Now, the word we render originator is arche. Arche is a favorite word of John's. No other author ever used arche as often as John did. It's one of his favorite terms. Um, the only person in the New Testament that comes anywhere close is the book of Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews. Hebrews' use of R.K. is even so a distant second to John's. This is one of his favorite words. The word's hard to get into English. I think trailblazer might come closest to the meaning. When you're the trailblazer, the one out in front of the, of the group, and there's no trail, you're, you're hacking away, you are the originator, you have the prime position, you are the one who creates what wasn't there before. That's Jesus. He's the trailblazer of our faith. He's the author. He's the perfecter. Where nothing existed, He has made a way for us. Jesus, Jesus makes something out of nothing so that people can enjoy the fruits of His labor. Read with me from Paul's statement about all this. Colossians chapter 1, Paul addressed this as well. Uh, we're going to read 15 through 17. You get the underlined text. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see 
and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. Amen. That is the author of this last letter to the churches. And in this letter, Jesus addresses Laodicea. Well, technically, He addresses the angel of Laodicea. Now, this is a tough problem for the Bible translators because the word angel just means messenger. Okay, whenever you, angel just means messenger in the Greek. The context tells you whether it is a human messenger or an angelic one. By the way, they're not the same. Humans and angels are not the same. They don't become each other. Every passage, though, makes it clear. It's not hard. Every passage makes it clear whether it's a human as a messenger of God or an angel. Every passage except this one. I'm telling you, the only place in the Bible where you can't tell what is meant by angel is in these seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 through 3. Here, it could be the pastor who is sharing God's word with the church. That could be, or it could be the angels who watch over Christian assemblies. Don't ask me. I don't know. I can't tell. I think if I had to make a choice, I would say it's the pastor because there are so many other references to pastors in these letters, but hold that loosely. Regardless, the angel of the pastor passes word on to the church at Laodicea. Look up here at the map. Laodicea is here. It's on the Lycus River Valley, a major area running through Central Asia Minor, a major trade route cuts through the mountains there. Um, her neighbors were Heropolis and Colossae. Now, at the beginning of the classical era, Colossae was the up-and-coming town. It was, the, it was the place that was really on the move and, and lots of good stuff happening there. But some things happened, don't have to go into them, but Colossae, by the time we enter the Roman period, Colossae had become a backwater, really. I mean, it was, it was a has-been town. In fact, its population had just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, so much so that it's somewhat fascinating that Colossae, little Colossae, the backwater forgotten town, gets two letters in the New Testament. The letter to the Colossians and Philemon, both sent to Colossae. So God must care about little things, right? Now, the growth continued, but it was picked up by Laodicea and Heropolis, and they became boomtowns. Those became really, really important centers of, of trade and banking and medicine. In, in fact, the Romans made Laodicea the capital city of the whole political district. This represents a Frisco-like ascension. I, I, don't, I don't know how to sell this. This will say it all, Okay. Laodicea becomes the Roman political capital. It was a little tiny town that had taken its name from the scheming, vindictive, and ultimately divorced wife of a Hellenistic king, Ptolemy II. Her name was Laodicea. That is not an auspicious beginning, okay? It's a little like when I moved to Frisco 30 years ago. When I moved to this town, there were 5,000 people here, and our only major roadway was a two-lane asphalt road with no shoulders, Preston Road, you call it. Now, by the way, the locals did not call it Preston. They called it 289. That was, you really showed yourselves an outsider if you called it Preston Road. It was 289. And by the way, Rolliter was pronounced Rolliter, not Rolator. Anyway, this was all important stuff back then. And, uh, and that was it. And guess what? Up and down the asphalt 289, there were prostitution houses dotting all along the way. That was Frisco. Not an auspicious beginning, right? just like Laodicea. But Laodicea, like Frisco, Texas, became very wealthy and very confident. They, they were so well off. How well off? So glad you asked. They were so well off that in 60 AD, when a devastating earthquake struck the area, Laodicea rebuilt immediately. There was almost no pause and everything. And in fact, they rebuilt without government money. The Roman government offered, as they usually did in a terrible earthquake, lots of money from the, uh, from the emperor, and they refused it and said, no thanks, we'll take care of it ourselves. Woo! 
They're wealthy. The rebuilt waterworks are maybe the most impressive part of what they did after that 60 AD earthquake. They are really impressive. I hope you get to go there someday and see them, especially because so many of you are engineers. I think you'll enjoy them. Uh, look at the photo I put in our notes. You can see a little bit of, of the, at least the above part of the waterworks in the picture I put in your notes. Now, on the left, you're going to see a spring there. It's actually a spring with a well to, to channel it. And that was a cold water spring that became the centerpiece of the new agora. Uh, agora is the Greek, forum is Roman. They're the same thing. It's a center of business and commerce and, and a, a shopping mall, if you will, big, big open area. And, uh, and some of you, a few of you I know I see have been with me there uh, in Laodicea, and we can testify that on the very, very hot days there, that water is really cold and really good because we have drunk from that spring. It still flows today. On the right side, directly across, I mean, directly across from the cold water spring is a hot water nymphium. It, um, it was shipped in and it was, uh, it was mineral water, uh, kind of like Hot Springs, Arkansas, hot mineral water that came out of the ground. And you went there to get hot water if you wanted hot mineral water and to worship the nymphs, the, the demigoddesses of, of the water for the city. So you would, you would take your water, you'd pour out a tenth of it on the ground and worship the nymphs. And, and so that was what happened on the right side. By the way, that one you can't get to today. The minerals have clogged up the pipes, um, kind of like your hot water heater at home. Uh, anyway, the, uh, sorry, shouldn't have brought that up. Tough subject, I know. Anyway, um, they, they've clogged it up. But if you go across the valley to Heropolis, the hot springs are still flowing there. You can get the idea. So cold on the left, hot on the right, nymphium on the right, and in the middle is, is this, this roadway. Now, the roadway is built over the wastewater sewer that is underneath. In some cities, uh, particularly further west of this, the Romans built roads kind of like we did. They, they crowned the road in the middle and had the water run off into gutters or, or ditches on the sides. But in a lot of cities, they did what they did here. They actually had the road make it really brilliantly constructed, very slight come into the middle. It would, it would bend down in the middle. And there are these slots here that you can still see in the marble. They run all the way up the cardo, all the way up the street. And, uh, and those slots went down into the wastewater sewer underneath. Okay? You got it? So you've got cold water on the left, hot on the right, and then the wastewater sewer in the middle. Keep that in mind as we read the next section of text. Verse 15, I know your works, Jesus says, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, and I need nothing. That's how they said it, too. I don't know if you know that. Um, and you don't realize that you're a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. On the right side of our notes, we summarize that Laodicea is wasting their time in the sewer. They're wasting their time in the sewer. Jesus shows them where they really are. Remember, to the right are the hot springs and the massive nymphium. To the left is the delicious cold water in the forum, the agora. In the middle is the sewer underneath the marble main street. Uh, you can see a picture of it here. If you look up here, I've got a, a photo of the sewer that is underneath there. Uh, I think you can surmise from that photograph that the sewer looks beautiful on top, but it's disgusting underneath. It looks shiny and lovely, as marble always does, but that's merely something on which to tread. And just underneath that is a place for waste. The Laodicean Christians may think they are spiritually beautiful, but in reality they are living in the wastewater sewer. Matt Thiessen apprehended this so well in his poem. Uh, Matt Thiessen wrote a poem in which he said this, What have you been doing lately? Your life could use improving greatly. I just wanted to know what's going on, but everything that goes is going wrong. Pardon me while I throw up. 
I guess some people never grow up. What happened to the salvation you claimed? It breaks my heart to see how much you've changed. Close quote. That, my friends, is a marvelous depiction of what Jesus says to Laodicea. It makes him ill that these Christians live in the sewer. And in verse 17, Jesus mocks their imagined condition, how they think they are walking on the marble high road. Uh, For you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, and I need nothing. It's so creepy. But sadly, I don't know if you've noticed this, complacency and success often go together. Proverbs 18 put the idea this way. Read it with me. Let's read it together. Proverbs 18, verse 11. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. This imaginary view of self is so ridiculous that it is made fun of. It is mocked even by the world. Even the world, which does not have the illumination to see the things you see in the Scripture, even the world around you gets how ridiculous it is. For example, memes like this are very popular. How I think I look when I go jogging, how I really look when I go jogging, right? In our imagination, our richness means that we're not needy. Instead of living with childlike faith, resting on Jesus, trusting Him always wherever He puts us, we live childishly. We refuse His hand as we try to cross the busy street of life on our own, right? Like a foolish little boy, we run out into traffic thinking we know what we're doing. It's a tragic waste, Christians. Because successful Christians often struggle with this kind of puffed-up lack of dependence. This is not a rare occurrence. We imagine that we are so successful living without our reliance upon Jesus, but the Lord loves us enough to show us where we really are. He lets us crash down into the wastewater. Listen now, this has nothing to do with a Christian's justification. It has everything to do with their sanctification, with the course of their life here and now. And it does have repercussions For their glorification. Looking at verse 17, where Jesus exposes their true condition wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. These are exactly opposite of their supposed self perception. Instead of successful, these Christians are wretched. Wretched, by the way, is a great term that Jesus employs to make a powerful point. Um, The the Greek is teleoporos. Get this teleoporos only appears one other time in the entire New Testament. Um, And when Paul uses teleoporos in Romans, and Jesus speaks it here in Revelation, they have the same history in mind. The the word means an absolutely miserable, awful experience. Look at how other Greek authors use this word. Xenophon used teleoporos to describe men toiling in rock quarries. Thucydides, he liked this word, he used it quite often. He used teleoporos to describe sufferings and, and difficulties resulting from war or the long rainy season or the plague in the Peloponnesian War. Josephus, um, who was a Jewish general before he became a Roman, he, he used it to describe the fatigue of long marches for the army. Philo lived in Egypt, and he used it to describe having to spend a night without a blanket out in the desert when it turns really, really cold and it's, dis- it's uncomfortable. He describes teleoporos, wretched. These people are exposed, enslaved, laboring, plagued, and they don't even recognize it. Thank goodness we're not like that. I mean, we always are aware of our true situation, right? No, no deceit here, no mask. We never fake life with ourselves or with others. Or maybe we do. Jesus' use of blindness is really telling. These folks think that they can see. They really do, but they're blind to their own sins. Now, which of Jesus' object lessons does this obviously parallel? His statement about what in your eye? Yeah, the log in your own eye. 
Christians very often resemble this awful aspect of Laodicea. We are so much more blind than we realize. So what can be done? I mean, listen to Paul's cry. Paul's cry in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul screams out for all the helplessness that we discover when we really see how we live and act. We recognize that we are in a sewer and we are bogged down with eye logs. Ah! Wretched. And by the way, guess what word the Holy Spirit inspired from Paul's pen? Ding, ding, ding. You got it. This is the other appearance of Teleoporos. Paul recognizes his true condition. The Laodiceans need to. So do we. Because when we do, everything can change. When we do, we get positioned for amazing grace. Look, look at this little chart. In Romans 7, Paul recognizes his wretchedness, his teleoporos, right? But that's good because that positions him for Romans 8. And in Romans 8, he learns to, to live with confidence by God's grace. Ah, childlike faith, that sigh, that resting on the great amen by God's grace and God's power. Revelation 3.17 says, Laodiceans need to recognize their teleoporos. So do you and I, and live by God's grace. And that's the point of the next section. Pick it up. Verses 18 through 20 is the next section. Let's read verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. And ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Jesus encourages here a return to grace. Buy from Jesus. It, that, that's a euphemism. It, it's a it's a point about dependence on Christ. Dependence on Christ leads to true riches, true growth. And Jesus expresses a point with three object lessons. Okay, He uses gold, white clothes, and eye ointment. Now, you may have heard this over the years. Many scholars have pointed out that Laodicea exported gold and cloth and eye salve. This is sometimes overstated, but it is true that each of these was part of their economy. Only one of them really a major part, but it's part of their economy. Jesus, again, seems to be using objects, as he likes to do, that are familiar to the audience. But there are some twists. Look, look at your text. Now, Jesus calls for gold refined by fire. Gold refined by fire requires a great deal of ore. Smelting takes nuggets. Smelting doesn't work really well when it's just dust, okay? You need a lot of gold to do good gold refining by fire. And this is a little bit of a slap in the face of the Laodiceans because, you see, all of their gold was dust. All the gold in Asia Minor <clears throat> in this age came from these streams that poured out of the hills. And the streams had gold dust in them, right? And so they would collect the gold dust. Well, that's very hard to do. You know what? They did? This is really brilliant, by the way. You know what they did? They took, they took fleece from, from sheep, and they would, they would let them grow long, and they would take long woolly fleece, and they would stretch them out and put them across the streams. And then the gold dust would flow by and catch in the fleece, and then they would have gold. Now, it's not much. You had to tease it out. It's a lot of work. But, but you get gold that way. When you were a kid in school, how many of you remember the story of Jason and the golden fleece? Jason the Argonaut's golden fleece? There was probably some basis of truth in that story about a Mycenaean Greek going to this part of the world to Laodicea area and, and stealing their gold fleece. It's probably got some truth to it. But that is a paltry and very slow way to get gold. Jesus' gold is better. better. His is refined. It's plentiful. Jesus has nuggets. Okay, that's, that's what he's saying, right? There's a similar joke that's inherent in white clothes. Laodicea was indeed famous for their wool cloth. It was a major export. But their most famous cloth was black. 
Jesus' offering is better than their best. You see, he provides real purity. The issue, issue is not white or black. In, in Revelation, uh, white always represents righteousness from God, purity, holiness from God that is given. So white clothes represent righteousness from God. So Jesus is offering them better than their best. Same thing with the eye poultice. His eye poultice has got to be better than anything on earth. He helps us see in a way that human medicines cannot. Now, read the next sentence. As many as I love, I what, everybody? Rebuke and discipline. Now, rebuke and discipline are not the same thing, although they are similar. Discipline is the, is the purposeful development of a person or persons. Discipline involves training. Sometimes it involves pain, but the main thing is training. Discipline is not punishment. There's no punishment in discipline. Discipline often involves multiple parties. That's what the word means. Rebuke's different. Rebuke or, or, or chastisement, sometimes it's called chastisement, the word's translated that way. It means the correction of crooked development. So it's not just getting you to grow straight. It's getting you back when you haven't grown straight. It always involves pain. Always. It is punishment. And, and interestingly, this word's rarely used for more than two parties. Now, one party might be a collective, like a church uh, and Jesus, but, it's, but it's, it's between two parties, okay? Jesus does both. He rebukes and he disciplines. Why? Because he loves. That's why. One of my neighbors loves his climbing roses. He tends them really well. They benefit all of our neighborhood by their fragrance. They're really beautiful, and they smell great. Because he cares about those plants, he's out there every day making sure they're growing up correctly, binding them up on his trellis, right? He's got a really great trellis. He makes sure they grow up the right way. But on occasion, and this is weird, one of those guys will break loose and just go off in the wrong direction. And I see him go out there, and he takes his shears, and he cuts it off. By the way, he taught me how to do it. It's always after the last leaf before the turn. You'd go back that far. So, now you know. Uh, that's pruning. That's correction. That's rebuke. That's chastisement. Jesus has made it pretty clear what his trellis looks like. This isn't rocket science. In Scripture, Christians are taught to worship, develop, serve, fellowship, and give. It's not hard. We're, we're supposed to worship the Almighty God. We're supposed to develop our souls. We're supposed to serve the Lord and each other. We're supposed to engage in fellowship, even though other people are horrible. And, uh, and they are. Uh, and we're supposed to give. We're supposed to give sacrificially of God's stuff. If you're not following that trellis that Jesus lays out, you're missing the blessing of his disciplines. And you can be sure that because Jesus loves you, Christian, if you're a Christian, he loves you so much that when you go off wrongly, he will cut you back. He will. All right, finish the section. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is ever ready to fellowship with those who open the door by repentance. Now, you may have heard this. This statement we just read is often used in evangelism invitations, and, and that's fine, but technically this isn't a statement for non-Christians. This is something Jesus is saying to Christians, to believers in Jesus who need to repent, who need to change their mind. When we change our minds, metanoia, repent, about Jesus and sin and real life and where we really are, then you know what happens? We can enjoy open-door fellowship with the Lord himself. David Wade of our pulpit team sent me a brilliant note about this. Look, David wrote me and he said, he quoted the scripture, he said, open the door and I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Then David says, 
fellowship with the Lord more wonderful than anything else we can experience now and forever. His desire for us and the desire He has put in our hearts for Him is to experience His love and joy. We are so distracted by earthly things like the Laodiceans that we forget the greatest gift is fellowship with Him. All God's people said, Amen. May it be so. Martin Lloyd-Jones expresses this really boldly. He wrote a great book about Psalm 27, and in it he says this, We must always start in heaven with God. Then, having done that, we come to earth and face the problems of life and living as we find them in light of what we've already seen in heaven with God. Never start with your problems. Never. Never start with earth. Never start with men. Always start in heaven. Always start with God. Close quote. So let's do this. Think, think about Think about, start with God. Think about His love. You start with the truth of just how much Jesus loves you. He loves you love to discipline your life and to rebuke you. And, and when you think of that, it opens the door to your heart. Speaking of which, by the way, anybody want to guess, you fans of 60s and 70s music, anybody want to guess what song popped in my head as I read verse 20 when I was working on this? That's right, The Who. Very good. Pete Townshend. Uh, now, Pete Townshend had a God complex, let's be honest. He wrote some weird stuff. But, um, but if you imagine Jesus speaking these lyrics, it really makes sense. Just, just, just for grins, imagine Jesus speaking this. I have the only key to your heart. I can stop you falling apart. Try today. You'll find this way. Come on, give me a chance to say, let my love open the door. It, it's all I'm living for. Release yourself from misery. There's only one thing going to set you free. That's my love. Not bad, huh? When tragedy befalls you, don't let it drag you down. Love can cure your problems. You're so lucky I'm around. Let my love open the door. Let my love open the door. Let my love open the door to your heart. Jesus is ever ready. He is ever ready with his trellis of training and his pruning shears of rebuke. Repent. Respond to the discipline of grace. Open the doors of your heart garden and let him in. And now we have come to the end of Jesus' letters to the churches. His last statement reminds, reminds us that all Christians will reign with him. Read verses 21 and 22. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Mm. Now, unlike some of the other promises in the other letters to the churches, this one is a millennial promise. You see, there are many other texts that reveal that Jesus' people are going to reign with him in a thousand-year kingdom that is promised and is coming. Our Messiah is the ultimate rock star, right? And we get to be on stage with him. When I was a kid, I worked at a water park when I was in college. And one summer when I was guarding there, the Beach Boys came to our water park. Uh, they were doing a photo op for a big concert that they had, and they, they came out to the park, and they did a lot of water stuff, and, and our boss picked three of the guards that would go around with them and show them around all day and, and make sure that people stayed away from them and, uh, and that they could do all the stuff and the cameras could get good pictures and all that to promote their deal. And uh, it was kind of a, a silly job, and I wasn't really excited about it because I thought a bunch of prima donna rock stars, and actually, I enjoyed them. They, they were funny. They, they were fun. I... I had a good time. They were, they were good guys. It was, really, it was really a fun day. The next day, when we got to work, our boss pulled the three of us, the three guards aside, and he said, hey, you guys need to leave at five today. We thought, what do we do wrong? He said, I didn't do anything wrong. He said, look, uh, the Beach Boys were grateful. They said they'd like, to, I'd like you to hang out with them tonight. 
So here are tickets to their concert, and uh, this letter will get you into their backstage to their green room, and you're supposed to be at the arena by 5.30 so you can have some time to hang out in the green room. Okay. So we went, and we hung out with the Beach Boys, and it was a blast. They actually were much better musicians than I thought. They were back at... I don't mean that badly. They were just they were, they really they were back there really playing some neat stuff, and it was just so pleasant. We had the best time just eating and talking and laughing in the green room. Now, I do need to say the after party after the concert. Uh, you, we left before it got weird. Let's just say that, and it was already well on its way. But but before it was great. We had a great time, and they were funny and fun. And then they said, "Oh, hey, it's about time. You guys need to you just need to get out to your seats." And we we're like, "Okay." So we thought we have to go out to the auditorium. We started. They said, "No, no, no." Up here, and they walked us up onto the stage. You know, the, it, at big arena concerts, the huge mountain of speakers, right? Well, we were in three chairs right behind. The audience couldn't see us right behind those, and we're just looking at the guys the whole time. I sang harmony the whole concert. I just, <laughs> uh, I was singing right along. It was awesome. Really a fun time. Now, the Beach Boys were cool, but Jesus is the greatest rock star, and, and his after parties aren't creepy, okay? <laughs> And Jesus promises that when he leads in the millennium, Christians are going to have a special place beside him in the ultimate after party. Now, all that is a result of being in Christ who is the conqueror. Our victory, our victory that gets us up on stage is tied directly to the victory of Jesus. That's why, look, our conquering is described with the form of the Greek word Nike, uh, Nike we would say. That is the exact same word that is formed to describe Jesus' conquest. And there are other passages, I don't have time to go into this, other passages tell us there will be levels of responsibility in the millennium. And those levels of responsibility are based on our faithfulness here on earth. You stay in the sewer, you're going to have a lot less responsibility. But all Christians will be serving with Jesus in some capacity because everyone who trusts him is considered in Jesus. We conquer because he is the conqueror. We're part of his conquest. Now, is that true of you? Are you in Christ Let's consider that in prayer. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for anyone who can hear my voice that does not believe in Jesus as Savior, that you will draw them to you right now. Listen. Listen, friends. The truth is, However much you may think you're walking in sunshine up in the marble, you're actually down in the sewer. I know this passage was written to Christians, and we tend to do the same thing. But we've got an assurance of conquest being in Jesus. And quite frankly, you do not. You're just like we were. You are a sinner. You are separated from a holy God. He's not holy if he just says, oh, your sin doesn't matter. It has to matter. You're toast. But, but God loves you so much that Jesus, fully God the Son, the creator of everything, he came and gave up all of the privileges of heaven so that he could become human and die on the cross for you. It's astonishing but true that the, the testimony is overwhelming. He's who he claimed to be. And then he rose from the dead so that if you believe in him, not only are your sins forgiven because he paid for them, but you get to follow him in everlasting life. You get to be on the stage with him forever. If you've never done so, believe in Jesus right now. Trust him. Stop being childish and sigh 
and be childlike. Rest in him. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand and smile at me, would you? I want to smile at you. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Good for you. Amen. Lord, I pray for all these Christians, new and old. I praise you for them. It is a testimony to you that we are overcomers because of you, that we are in Christ. And thank you for the communion that reminds us of that. In Jesus' name, amen.